What's up, bookworms? This is Megan coming at you with another Cantina Conversation. Today's episode features a chat with Edward Cahill. He's the debut author. His book that we're talking about today is uh, Disorderly Men. That is a very good book. It's available now. I really enjoyed talking to Edward about um, just his experiences in the gay community and why he decided to bring this story to life. And it, it really is a good story, so I recommend everybody pick it up. But without further ado, here is Edward Cahill. So today we've got Edward Cahill. We're talking about Disorderly Men. That book is available now. Edward, thank you for joining us today. I love this book. I think everybody should read it. I have lots of thoughts on it. We'll get into it. <laughs> but I'm excited to dive a little bit deeper with you today. Thank you, Megan. It's a it's a pleasure to be here. Awesome. Thank you so much. Um, so before we get started, can you share like a summary of the book so people who haven't picked it up can follow along with the conversation? Sure. So it's the story of uh, three men from different walks of life who are arrested in the police raid of a gay bar in Greenwich Village in New York City in 1962. And uh, it follows their lives uh, in the two weeks uh, thereafter as they confront all the challenges that that arrest brings, and uh, it forces them to make some decisions about who they are and the kind of life they want to live. Yeah, that's that's a very simplified version of how heavy um, this story is. And I, like I said, I, I love this book. Um, it was really powerful. I give you so many kudos for your writing ability and really like just bringing the severity of um, these fictional stories, even though they're based, it's a historical fiction. It's There were stories like this that were very similar in that time period of the 60s before that um, historical Stonewall riot, which is like powerful in itself. Um, but yeah, it's this was an amazing book. I loved getting into it. That being said, can you can you go into your background a little bit? Because this is your debut novel, right? Yeah. Yeah. Congrats. Can you go into like your background and like kind of what led you to to share or to just develop this book? Sure. So, um, you know, right out of college, I wanted to be a fair fit, really daunting and frustrating. And uh, the New Yorker and the Atlantic Monthly wouldn't take my story. So I I said, oh, I should go into academia instead. With <laughs> Uh, and I spent the next, you know, 30 years um, being uh, a scholar, um, mostly of uh, 18th and 19th century, um, uh, you know, North America. And um, I did that for a really long time, wrote some screenplays with my partner, um, wrote a couple of plays, but really steered clear of fiction. Then I had an idea for a screenplay and it involved a police raid on a gay bar in Greenwich Village in the, uh, you know, in mid-century. Um, and at some point it just became... Uh, an idea for a novel. I was was literally sitting in the New York Public Library working on uh, a big cultural history of upward mobility and the early modern Atlantic world. When I decided I was on sabbatical, I put the I pushed my books aside in a very dramatic way, and I said, "No, I'm not going to write another <laughs> fifty people read. I want to write a novel." And so I started writing this story. Um, and uh, you know, it took me four years to write, a year to get an agent, two years to sell the book. And another year to put it to put it into press. So it's a long journey, but it's just been pure joy. That's really common. Don't worry. <laughs> it's just from the conversations that I've had with other authors. Some of them, you know, sit on their um, their work for like ten years, and until they decide to share it with the world, and then they start that whole process of like 
you know, pitching to publications. So um, I'm, I, I, for one, I'm glad that you, you figured it out and that it got, it got going for you. Um, so were there any like big lessons learned? Like were, and then, you know, you were in academia for a while, for a while, and you were kind of exploring um, writing and things like that. Like, were there any uh, skills that you found that were transferable to this experience? Things like that? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, um, in order to, you know, to be a professor, mostly you need a PhD and to get a PhD, you have to write a dissertation, which is a huge project and involves managing lots of pieces of information. And writing a novel is also a huge project that involves uh, managing lots of information. You know, you've got characters and and character traits and you've got storylines and calendars and you have to make sure that the weather on one day is the same uh, for one <laughs> character on that same day there's so much to manage and you know um you know writing writing a dissertation um uh, you know writing my first monograph writing lots of journal articles really helped me to figure out how to manage big projects so uh you know once w- once i was you know in the thick of doing the research for the novel i really i kind of knew what i was doing um uh i think the other thing is that you know i've been teaching fiction for you know the better part of three decades um and spent a lot of time thinking about how it works and how it gives pleasure and where are those moments where you know we feel really connected to the text and how to avoid those kinds of mistakes that that keep us at a distance from the text so i think i had a lot more uh, i had a lot to learn you know because reading is not the same as writing and <laughs> text is not the same as producing them but i knew what i wanted to achieve it just took me a while to figure out how to do it yeah yeah so it's like you know those who can't teach right <laughs> that's the old saying um but that's so funny that you were like ready to you were you had been already been experienced in researching and teaching and and well teaching as a whole thing because you're like researching your topic and trying to find a way to deliver it um and so that's so funny that that's how you started off and not not to mention that you started off um writing it as in a different for a different audience for not for a different audience but for different delivery for a different medium you you were trying to write a play and then it became a novel um can you kind of like expand on that can you explore that because I think it's so fascinating like try to to tap into that process and like oh that you have a thing and you know you have a certain situation in mind right you have a vision in mind of how you're going to deliver this story but then you kind of switch gears <laughs> and then like, oh shit, now I have to write prose, you know, like, what? <laughs> so like, was there anything that was like, you know, biggest lessons learned? Like, can you, can you expand on that? I think once you start getting to know your characters, they tell you an awful lot about what they need and, and how they need to exist and what they want to express. Um, and, uh, you know, a screenplay might've been a good idea and, you know, <laughs> got an agent working really hard to sell this um uh you know as a limited series uh i th- i think it's I, I think it can work but um i just realized i had more to say my characters had so much more to say um you know in uh in a script you have to concentrate these moments um into you know into brief scenes uh and uh you know uh, gestures in a novel you can dig deep into interiority uh you can explore you know uh, uh you know personal histories uh, it's, it's, you know, the scope is really just so much, uh, so much bigger. So once I started understanding who these characters were, I realized their story needed to be told, um, in a much more, uh, personal and detailed way than, than a film could. Um, I think, I think that's, that's, uh, that's probably the most important in terms of, you know, lessons overall. I mean, I think the, 
the, you know, this is a story that I wanted to tell because, uh, uh, you know, between 1923 and 1966, we now know, thanks to the historian George Chauncey, over 50,000 LGBTQ men and women were arrested for disorderly conduct and lewd vagrancy um, charges. That's just in New York City. There are so many lives that were affected uh, by this, uh, this, you know, uh, this part of our past, this very oppressive part of our past. A lot of those people, I should say a lot, some of those people are still alive. Um, and, you know, we haven't honored their, their suffering. Uh, we haven't, we, we've only just begun to tell those stories. I mean, there's a, there's a wonderful amount of, uh, you know, queer fiction now that is beginning to tell those stories. Um, but I, I felt like the more I, I knew about those stories, the more I, I, I felt like they had to be told. Um, and that there was, you know, there was a lot of suffering and also a lot of shame. And I really wanted to explore what that shame felt like. Um, you know, a coming out story, uh, there are lots of different kinds of coming out stories. Um, and we may think that if we've seen one, we've seen them all, but it's just not true, right? Th these three men are all are each coming out in their own ways. And a coming out story is a kind of existential trial. Your life feels like it's literally on the line. Um, and and I realized that's, a, that's the kind of story we always want to tell. We want to tell a story about a character who feels like everything is at stake. Um, and so uh, there's, you know, there's a, a, a rich history here, but also a lot of drama. Yeah. Yeah. I love that point that you make. Like it's because you include three, three main characters, three point of views in their stories. And because it is, they all have very different experiences from undergoing the same night. Right. So it's like, you know, Roger, he is stand up citizen, picture perfect. He's a wife and children. He's got that white picket fence American dream. But my heart breaks for him because he's living a lie and he's trying his best to like find those outlets and to to satisfy those just just those urges that are part of who he is, just like being being himself and, and living his life. And then you've got um Julian who's living out loud and he's in academia and so he people there like maybe you know i at least i got the gist from um your book that people kind of like look away you know they're like eh, we know but we're not we, we don't really care we're not going to turn them in we don't we're just we're gonna like look the other way kind of like don't ask don't tell <laughs> and then um and then danny he is going through it he is going through it he is going through like he's shunned he's outcasted and he's kind of like gotta gotta figure things out and he bears the brunt of the consequences for sure like he he loses everything we're gonna try to be spoiler free but then it's also like eh, the book is out so <laughs> um but you know he, but that's also not a spoiler right like it's part of the story where he he's a that part of his um that version of coming out he that you know that's like the the one thing that most of them the men i imagine the men and women a part of that community feared um during that time and so that's why i loved that part of the book where well just the over the overall like um energy of the book where you just you capture the different experiences but also like i don't know how you did it but like you found a way to just make the read or at least for me you know speaking for myself you made me feel like you made me feel for them i was like because i think you know i'm 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 really sensitive to the community and I think that like you know it's so fucking stupid that people look at 
you know, your community a different way or that community a different way. I feel like it's not a big deal. There are more important things to worry about. It's none of my business. Like, so I, you know, like there, I have, I have uh, really close friends um, who are gay, who stood up at my wedding. So it's like, I'm, I'm right there with you. And I think that's maybe why it touched me, why it resonated I don't know it resonated with me so much because I didn't re- I didn't relate to that struggle, but it just it touched me so much where I was just like my heart broke for all your characters and you delivered it in such a way to allow that. Um, but no, it's so important, I think, like you said, to share these stories. There are so many stories and there's so many ways to tell those stories. So I think it's so important. Like I I feel like everybody should read this book. <laughs> um, but no, these these characters were were like amazing and i and i i loved and i don't know because i guess like sometimes when you switch uh characters or you switch points of view you're kind of like oh, i want to get back to this character i want to get back to this character but no i was like oh, okay we're back to him and we're back to him i was like okay cool like you know um so it was it was just really powerful storytelling on your part and it, it being your debut novel i was like this guy has not written a novel before and yet he does it so well but now that I'm learning from you where you just like you kind of spent many years like researching and teaching and learning from your students I imagine like where you kind of knew uh where to what corners to cut what mistakes to avoid and you know how to how to really just bring it home and I think like now that I'm talking to you about it it makes so much more sense as to why uh your debut was was just um was just so good um but kind of like piggybacking off of that switching point of views uh can we explore that a little bit like how how did you get into the headspace because they're you know very different situations and not to mention like different um you know, socioeconomic classes, right? Different professions, different backgrounds, different family dynamics, things like that. Like, how did you kind of get in the headspace? How did you switch back and forth? What was your process like for that? Yeah, so, um, you know, having multiple points of view feels necessary in this novel. I mean, first of all, I'm telling the story of three white men, three cis white men. So it's not representative, you know? Uh, These are the stories I felt like I could tell well. It's certainly not representative, but they are different. And, you know, one of the pleasures, I think, uh, and sometimes maybe even the frustrations of reading multiple points of view is moving from one to the next. So that that experience for the reader has to be has to be stimulating. Um, And, you know, as we make that shift, um, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, in my novel, which moves pretty regularly, we get the sense that, yeah, we're going to be alternating, um, uh, you know, in a predictable way. But sort of slipping back into that uh, that that character's point of view should be, uh, you know, a, a real pleasure for the reader, kind of bringing us back, reminding us of where we are and what's at stake. Um, and the the you know, the most important way to do that is to establish the personality, the fears, the biases, the prejudices, the desires, um, you know, the, the the interiority of that character immediately and to sustain it. You know, I don't ever want Roger's narrator to sound like Julian's narrator. Um, and I certainly don't want any of them to sound like Danny's narrator. You know, when I'm writing, I can hear the voice of that narrator. And each one is very, very distinct. Um, that narrator notices different things. Julian's narrator notices different things than Danny's. Um, you know, Danny's uses different language. Uh, you know, Danny's Danny's has a kind of a recklessness to it. Uh, that Roger certainly doesn't have because, uh, you know, Roger himself, the character is, uh, is, you know, the opposite of reckless. He's very, very careful. So I think, 
you know, being able to, uh, I mean, this is third person close. I stay very, very close on these characters. Um, so in that case, narration really is a function of character. It's just really knowing who that character is, knowing how he thinks, knowing what matters to him, um, and, you know, and beginning each new chapter in a way that immediately, immediately brings us back to that, that very specific spirit. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I know it's funny how, like, how much is like, underneath the surface right because when a reader reads a book that's different uh points of view but at the get-go you gotta like build a whole backstory you gotta keep your notes intact you gotta keep them organized especially with three points of view so i know i always um and and fascinated a little bit excited when uh books have different points of view because then it's like it adds that much more of a challenge um you know it's not really a challenge for the reader if you do it right but like it's definitely a challenge for the author and i you know, as a big dork, a big bookworm, I appreciate that so much more where it's. Well, you know, and I'll say one more thing. I think, you know, in this in this particular case, this is really, you know, in 1962, there wasn't really a queer community. Um, you couldn't be in a community. It was too dangerous. You had small groups of people who who took the risk of trusting one another. Yeah. But to tell the story of this community, I had to have multiple points of view. These characters didn't really know who they were until they found each other. Uh, and so that that, you know, their interaction and their differences, as well as, uh, you know, their similarities is a real important part of the story. I don't think I could have told it, say, in first person, like, uh, you know, James Baldwin's um, uh, Giovanni's Room. You know, it's a very, very different story. This is really a story about a community or at least the an inchoate community in formation. Multiple points of view was crucial. Yeah, absolutely. Because I like how you say that, where it's like they kind of really fully realize themselves together because it's before you know they had different lives and before that they were living secretly in their own ways but then this shared experience they were all like forced to deal with it right they were forced to deal with the repercussions and the um aftermath of just one night of bad luck like wrong place wrong time kind of thing even though to call it wrong i i feel <laughs> i feel bad saying it's a wrong place wrong time because i never it was never wrong in the first place. And it's so messed up that, you know, the 60s, uh, fifth, no, oh my God, no, 40 plus 20, 60 years ago, right? Right? Am I getting that math right? Okay. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I know I'm still like, uh, 2000. Like, that's like my my balancing point to do the math. Um, But yeah, and it's so crazy that like, just 60 years ago, it was like my grandpa, um, if he were still alive, or probably actually trying to think my parents it was probably my parents lifetime yeah they were born in the 50s so it was my parents lifetime even though they were like you know kids they it was in their lifetime that this happened and to me that's crazy that is crazy to me and it's so stupid <laughs> I'm like I've just got this you know I I you know I'm so much an advocate of and I've got two little boys and so I'm like I want them to understand that you know even if they don't if they are end up in opposite sex relationships, it's okay. Like it's normal. It's not like, it's not immoral. It's not weird. It's not strange for them to have friends or to know people who are in same sex relationships. You know, it's like, it, it it's, it's a delicate, like, at least at that age, it's kind of like, I got to be careful with my words, but at the same time, I'm like, well, no, it's just, there's different types of families or different types of couples. And so I think that it's, you know, kind of just 
I'm going to, I'm going to go all over the place with this interview because <laughs> I have lots of thoughts because I'm like so supportive of that community. And I, I, I'm really sensitive to it. And I, it's like, that's why I think that this book hit me so much, but yeah, it's like piggybacking off of that with that. You have to find the voices, you have to find the situations and you have to be consistent, right? Like, you, <laughs> did you have like post-it notes everywhere? Like, or did you have like a, a, you know, a vision board, a map of where you like, okay, we're in Danny's point of view now. Like, where did we leave off? You know, we're in Julian's point of view. Like what, what affects him? How was he feeling? Things like that. I'm not very uh, creatively uh, or organizationally creative. So no, I just had a million <laughs> Microsoft Word documents and I just constantly shuffling between my Microsoft Word documents. And I told <laughs> there are much better ways to do it, but that's that's my old fashioned approach. Hey, you know what? It's your first time. Don't, you know, you just got to do what you got to do. <laughs> do it however it works and then figure it out later. Um, so research involved, like I imagine you had to kind of like dig a little bit figure things out because obviously we're in present day um and you had a kind of you know this is kind of a period piece right historical fiction so you had to like imagine the context imagine how things really went down 60 years ago um what kind of like researcher was involved did you approach it the same way as you're used to uh was there anything fascinating or surprising that you learned things like that yeah um you know i started off with without doing a ton of research uh because i i had a real strong feeling for the early 60s just based on you know books that i've read uh films that i've seen um and i didn't i didn't want this to be a research project um you know i i've been a researcher you know for most of my adult life um i ended up doing quite a bit of research but um you know, only only when I as I needed to to figure out, uh, you know, certain certain questions, I didn't want, uh, you know, something to be happening uh, that didn't happen for, you know, three years. Um, but the most important thing, rather than just getting it historically accurate, um, and uh, and I think I think I tried, I think I did that. I wanted it to feel like 1962. Um, I, so I didn't want to wear my research on my sleeve. I didn't want anyone ever to notice my research, um, but I just wanted it to feel like 1962 which is to say, you know, um, still in the 50s, but on the cusp of radical change. You know, 1963 is the Beatles and it's, you know, Kennedy. Um, everything really seems to change in 1962 or 63, which is why I said it in 1962. Um, uh, the Internet, of course, is an amazing tool. Yeah. <laughs> You need to know, uh, you know, what kind of soap somebody used in 1962. You can find out very, very quickly. Um uh, you know, I certainly uh, I certainly read some, uh, you know, some big, thick books uh, about politics and culture and art and music uh, to really kind of get myself in the right frame of mind. But on the other hand, um, you know, I wanted these characters to uh, to to kind of live in the world that made the most sense to them. So my research was really geared toward, uh, you know, specific questions about what Danny might be thinking or doing at any given time what kind of, uh, you know, what kind of work Roger might be doing in 1962, the kind of uh, book Julian might be writing in 1962. Uh, so it was, it was really very targeted. But, you know, again, I was just astounded at how I, I found um, I found blogs uh, written by gay men who had lived in New York in 1960. Uh, you know, oh, 19- that's awesome. I bet that was gold. <laughs> they, gold. They, talk, they talked about the bars and their relationships and uh, dealing with the police and avoiding raids. Uh, so there were just so many great resources right there, um, very easily found. Um, you know, you don't have to go to the library. Uh, all the time. <laughs> 
yeah that it makes me think of like how much we take for granted it's like back then um you know the internet didn't exist and yeah how secretive everything had to be not just from a legal standpoint but from like you don't have the communities the access to the communities today where it's just like you could just search online and be like be private in your home maybe you haven't come out yet like for teenagers for example who haven't come out yet but they still find the communities right like they still find they have a way to like access um groups of people who like are in the same boat and it's and i bet in the 60s at like the time period that you set your book in it they had to do so much more work they had to do so much more work to find the people to find their group to find their community and um it's just things like that are just like oh god that's a story in it itself well it's you know it's absolutely fascinating to think about what a newspaper headline about a police raid of a gay bar meant First of all, it could destroy your life, right? Could It could cut you off from your family. You get fired from your job because people don't know what this information means. If you're called yeah. a perfect deviant, people get very upset about that and your life can be over. But it's the very same uh, newspaper headlines that told queer people where to go, where the bars were, because you couldn't, you didn't know, you couldn't just go on the internet and find out where are the gay bars. So, you know, if you find out that a bar has been raided, well, that's the <laughs> attention to and maybe hopefully when you go it won't be rated but that that was one way that queer people met, found each other an ironic way but an interesting one that's so funny i didn't even realize that i didn't even that didn't cross my mind that it was like you notice uh the danger like the the it's written down paper trail but then you're like oh like there's a group out there for me like that's yeah. so crazy Oh my gosh, that's so fascinating. That's so, <laughs> I don't know. You know, my my uh, my life, I am so appreciative of it, but I'm very like, my, uh, the little pocket that I fit into is is uh, very unchallenged, right? Like I'm a straight, <laughs> I'm a straight white woman, um, which, you know, I have my own struggles, but at the same time, it's like, I don't, I don't know shit. I haven't been through shit compared to like generations of these different communities even if it you know you don't want to talk about like uh 60s queer community you could talk about 70s 80s queer community it was still a struggle even though like that was the stonewall it uh, was such a momentous shift but still after that it was like it still hasn't been easy you know it's like it still hasn't there's they still face pushback um they're still not sure of how their their own like support system their own family unit their own friend circle will react and it's like i don't know what that i don't know what that's like so i think that's kind of reiterating my my sentiment that it's really important for these stories to be out there and for us to consider these things because it seems similar it seems silly to us now like why would it be a crime like why would you worry about just going to a bar to meet a one night stand like why would you worry about that well it's because people saw you as like a criminal or uh mood behavior or you know mental illness and it it's heartbreaking and it's it sucks but i like what you the powerful thing that you do in your story in your novel is um you're illustrating the blood sweat and tears that it took for sure for sure and if that you know that was your goal you definitely accomplished that and i think that's like par part of part of the meat and potatoes that is disorderly men is just really not just these individual stories but really like what it means in in the big picture it's just like 
this real the these stories really happened this really happened it's historical fiction for a reason and what they went through is why today it's not so you know like fantastical it's not so um i don't know what what the word what's the word is scandalous right it's not so like alarming it's just like my if my kid if my kids uh you know were attracted to men i'd be like okay well same goes as long as they treat you with respect as long as they got some goal for yourself don't let them distract you don't let them disrespect you like as long as they love you like it's fine i don't care like you know it's in in, uh, in 2022 there were more state anti-lgbt bills <laughs> introduced in the legislature than in any other year in history so uh you know the 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 forces that would keep us silent are out yeah. there are organized so things have changed. Um, and I, you know, I do think it's a lot easier to grow up gay than it was, um, you know, in the, in the 80s when, when, when I came out, it was, it was still pretty rough, uh, but maybe not quite as rough as it was in the 60s. Uh, but it's, yeah, there, there's, there, there are still, you know, threats to our civil rights. Um, and, uh, and, and, and those who are organized against us are very well organized. So the fight's not over yet. Yeah, no, I agree. And it's, it's like, I don't know, we, <laughs> If I could go down like a rabbit hole if I started talking about it, but I feel, you know, personally, I feel like I, I'm not, I'm not worried if, you know, someone from the gay community, from the drag community, from the trans community babysits my kids. I'm not worried about that. I don't care if they have questions. I'll answer them. If they have questions for you guys, you can answer them matter of factly. I, I would have to more. So I would have more trouble explaining why people are against it. You know, it's like, I, you know, like I said, I could go and do it. <laughs> like we gotta, we want to talk about your book. Right. But yeah, no, it's, it's so stupid. And it's just, to me, it's like smoke and mirrors to distract the public from the the bigger things. Um, but anyway, I digress. <laughs> um, going off of that. Uh, okay. So this is a question I was going to ask you earlier. So um, two-parter, what were the most challenging parts to write? And then what were the most enjoyable parts to write? Well, I'm going to take the first or the second part first. Um, you know, a lot of writers talk about writer's block and and they complain that writing is painful. And I have so much sympathy for them. <laughs> radical, but I just enjoy writing so much. And this novel was, as I said, it was just pure pleasure. Um, it was the thing I wanted to do when, you know, when I had other things I needed to do. Um, I just loved it. Uh, so what was the hardest part? Uh, I think if I if I think about the three characters, Danny is probably the least like me. You know, he's a good deal younger than me. Um, I I my father grew up in an Irish family. I didn't really grow up in an Irish family, so I had some connection to that. Um, but he 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 really, uh, you know, Danny gets radicalized, and um, uh, I I really had to work pretty hard to to imagine what that would look like. It's also a fascinating uh, journey with him to uh you know to 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 take a character who's really relatively unformed and put him through his paces um such that he starts to really understand that the world is organized against him and he has to decide what what he's going to do um i had a lot more education than than you know than danny did um i've been thinking about these issues for a really long time um it was it was certainly a challenge to imagine what it would be like to come to them more innocently and, you know, Danny's a real fighter and I'm much more of a lover than a fighter. Uh, <laughs> so so I, I, I had to imagine what a, a kid with so much physical energy would do 
uh, in, you know, in response to this situation. Um, Julian was a little bit easier. You know, I'm not a Shakespeare professor, um, uh, but uh, I know a lot of Shakespeare professors. Roger was a little bit easier for me. Um, uh, you know, I spent the first, uh, you know, 21 years in the closet. I know what it, I know what it feels like. It was easy enough to imagine, uh, you know, a straight future, um, not a very happy one. So Roger was a little bit easier uh, in that sense. Um, but really, I, I love all my children equally. They all just gave me a, a ton of pleasure to to imagine and to put, uh, uh, you know, put into action. Yeah, and and I appreciate that, you know, you you being forthright with it because, like, Roger, you know, so that was kind of like you imagining how if you would have unfortunately made that choice to just kind of try to go with the status quo or status quo and to just follow what society expects for you, things like that. Is that kind of like how you, you know, the, the alternative that you imagined what your life would have been like? Yeah. Um, you, you know, in terms of, you know, I mean, you know, to, to have a family to be, you know, in 1962, the head of a family um, with all these responsibilities and yet a real sense that you're committing fraud and uh, <laughs> fraud, fraud with uh, with this woman who you've you've uh, you, you promised uh, to love, honor and cherish um, and to children who who, who need you um, and you can't live honestly. And um, just how how soul crushing that is and, you know, how to how to conceive of an ethical life in in the face of choices that make an ethical life almost impossible. Um, so I felt like I, I understood that relatively well. Now, you know, Roger has kids and I don't. Uh, it's 1962 and I wasn't born until five years later. So <laughs> there's uh, a lot of imagining uh, to do there. Uh, but I think that, you know, imagining Roger as a, as a husband um, was, uh, was, was something I was familiar enough with that I could do with interest. Yeah, yeah. Because I, you know, as heartbreaking as all of their stories are, I almost think that even though on the surface Roger's life seems pretty well set like he's got things he's got a pretty sweet deal but it's not his right it's not what he speaks to himself you know and it, and not only that like he brought it's the guilt of roping his like wife and kids into it right like he he adds that attachment that he's guilty that he can't be the husband that his wife he feels that his wife deserves because he clearly cares about her he she's his you know for lack of better words she's his partner she's his homie she's his best friend but you know she doesn't she can't um cross that threshold because it was never it's not hers to cross you know and it's like and and especially with the kids where he's just he knows how his life is and he's worried that his son is gonna have the same life and to me that's like almost uh, arguably his his ver his story is like the most tragic you know and and especially because he's got his best friend who i imagine that's really common with a lot of uh homosexual men who like they grow uh strong relationships with or strong friendships with people who they are inadvertently attracted to and they want more from and they just know that they can't and it's you know I, I really, all the stories touched me, but I think Rogers was probably one of the more powerful ones just because of, probably just because it, there were so many implications to that, to his situation, for sure. Well, poor Roger has so many things thrown at him. 
And, uh, you know, he has um, he has what he thinks is like the worst day of his life. But then the next day is even worse than that. And then the days just keep getting worse. Um, and, you know, so there's there's a little bit of kind of mid-century melodrama here, really just putting the pressure on him to see what he'll do and, you know, to see to see if he can survive it and how he can survive it. Yeah. Yeah. Ugh. My heart breaks for them, but I'm like. I don't know. I don't have any, I don't have any advice. I don't have any, you know, it's easy for me to say right now, right? Like just do, trust me, it's going to be okay. <laughs> it's easy for me to be like, just do you, you do you boo-boo. It's going to be okay. Don't worry. There are brighter days ahead, but it's easy for me to say now, you know, um, especially it's like I was born in like the late eighties. So it's like, what do I know? Right. Like I was born into a time where that was already like just becoming non-sensational. You know, and and I, one thing I am proud of my dad though is that he for for he he admitted that you know for a while he wasn't okay with it, but he's become okay with it. Like I think that's like probably the one like the one identifiable um, facet of growth that I can identify you know that can identify in my dad because I know you know he grew up you know he was born in the fifties and he grew up in like an Irish family too, so you know and he he's kind of a smart ass and he's. Just, you know, he'll be like, oh, he's fabulous. And, but it's like, oh, he's, cause he's wearing like a sparkly blazer. Like that's his style. It's like, I don't know. I just like, I see it as different because he sees, you know, it's like he grew up in a certain way. So he has those opinions, but I think once he like grew, he grew and I, maybe because um his kids have, have grown up in these generations that maybe he kind of understood it too. It's like, it's not a big, I don't know. I, I could go on and repeat myself, but at the end of the day, like it's none of my business. I don't care. You're not hurting anybody. You're you guys are just trying to live your life. You guys are just trying to live your life and to have your rights and to be treated equal. And you don't you don't want to be like, oh, I'm gay. You just want to be like, oh, I'm I'm I got an interview. I'm trying to go for a job or are my family members having trouble. Like you don't that's not that's part of who you are, but it's not like you don't want it to be the main thing. You don't want it to be the thing that people point out. You're just, you're living your life. You're just a normal person, right? Like, I don't know. And that's like the kind of um, language that I want to teach my kids too. It's like, no, it's normal. It's less common, but it's normal. It's like not weird. It's whatever. Boys can have boyfriends. Girls can have girlfriends. It's not a big deal. And I think I'm hoping that that's, you know, still the trajectory of um, public opinion anyway. You know, it's like, I'm so I'm so amazed the way uh, young kids today, especially like the undergraduates I teach, they're just not that interested in in, in <laughs> you know someone's gay, someone's trans, someone's you know they just they don't think it's that big of a deal. Yeah, and they're like, are they racist? Like what? <laughs> when I taught Giovanni's room twenty years ago, the students were very uncomfortable talking about homosexuality. And now it's just, yeah, he's gay, you know, um, it's really no big deal. Um, uh, so I think, I think, you know, kids are just, they're, they're, they're growing up really different um, uh, in a lot of places, maybe not all, but. Um, but, but I imagine it, that's like really like a, a, a breath of fresh air for you, right? Like to, to, to be watching the generations grow and to seeing these students come in and to see their mentality change. I bet that you're like, oh, nice, you know? <laughs> So uh, just a few more questions before we wrap up here. I feel like this hour went by so quickly. <laughs> okay. Uh, what do you hope the readers get out of your book, out of the story? 
Um, well, I, you know, first and foremost is just uh, uh, an entertaining and engaging uh, connection with characters and a moment in history. Um, you know, I, I wrote the kind of book that I like to read, um, and I don't like to read for, um, you know, uh, abstract or conceptual reasons. I like to read for pleasure. Um, so I wanted to write a pleasurable book. I wanted to uh, to expose these stories and this history to people who didn't know about it, because I think there are a lot of people who just didn't know about it, even though it's, it is quite recent. Mm -hmm. And I think I wanted to to take people who haven't had this experience sort of through the psychology of, um, of, uh, of queer shame and uh, and sort of the confrontation with you know with with one's own shame. Um, each of my characters does that in in a different way. Um, but you know that's really what the closet is ultimately about. It's about learning to hate yourself and feel that you are uh, not of value. And coming out of the closet is is reckoning with that. Um, and a lot of us think we know that, um, but it's engaging with a character who's sort of going through that process in a really uh, sort of highly charged way under very difficult circumstances, I think is a way to to share what that's like. Um, and maybe in doing that, you know, open open a few eyes and uh, make things a little bit easier for uh, for the next generation. Yeah, absolutely. That's That's the reason why I feel like everybody should read this book, because it does... It, it walks you through these situations and as it's happening versus like now, you know, we kind of get the aftermath, right? We kind of see the final result, but we don't necessarily see, you know, what they had to do that, what led up to it. So I, no, I definitely agree with that. I think it's so important for readers to get that out of it, like to see, to see how it's happening. Um, the, the struggle, uh, the steps, the feelings, the emotions, um, all of that because right now obviously it looks like it's no big deal but like there were lots of things lots of hardship lots of heartbreak that had to happen for us to get here like even in america it's like we can only speak about america right like it's you know and it versus the rest of the world which is a whole nother whole nother ball game so all right i'm gonna throw this at you what advice do you have for roger what advice do you have for Julianne? What advice do you have for Danny? Uh, let's see if I can do this without spoilers. Um, for Roger, I have uh, my advice is follow Julian and and take a big risk and maybe figure out how to uh, salvage what matters most. Um, I, I have to be a little cryptic here. For Julian, <laughs> my advice is be patient. Love will find a way. And for Danny, my advice is keep fighting, but take care of yourself in the meantime and surround yourself with people who love you. That's perfect. And I think, honestly, a lot of that advice can be applied to anybody in any situation. Just <laughs> at the end of the day, just just be careful, love yourself, and I don't know, have faith, I guess. Just know that you're you're not in the wrong side of history you know it's simple as that so okay edward cahill what's next for you are you working on anything that you kind of alluded to this earlier are you working on anything that you could talk about i'm working on another novel it's a historical novel um takes place uh in boston uh during the smallpox epidemic of oh god <laughs> 
but it's mostly full of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And, and uh, I'm about a hundred pages into it. Uh, and it's, it's, it's been uh, even more fun than the first one. Um, I, I, I cast, I was sort of casting about for a next novel and I thought maybe I should do another gay novel about kind of, you know, mid the mid-century queer struggle. And I just felt like I'd already written that book. I needed to do something really, really different. Um, my work um, as a scholar has focused on, uh, on Benjamin Franklin. I, so I thought I'll never go back there. I'm, I'm done with it. <laughs> I got drawn right back into Benjamin Franklin's world in Boston in the early 18th century. So that's where I'm, that's what I'm doing. <laughs> you just couldn't escape. Yeah, but I'm making it very queer. So Okay. <laughs> I love it. Let the gays win. <laughs> just curious, are you like on Instagram or TikTok? Are you like, a, how closely do you follow like, today's like a uh, general attitude towards because I don't know I just I love it like every the gay community is like I love their energy and I love their attitude and I love how they're like you know kind of just trolling like they just like all the I just see um people posting on like Instagram who are like oh yes the gays won like what it's just something people are treating things so dramatically and they're just like oh yes like bring it like how are you following um like how how are you uh experiencing that today i'm I'm on instagram but i'm not quite sure i know what you're talking about (laughs) okay maybe maybe it's just my i don't know maybe it's just my generation the people i follow (laughs) a 50 something man on on uh on instagram so that might make a difference um (laughs) yes yes uh the the well i don't know if the gays are winning but the gays keep fighting and that's a good thing Yes, absolutely. I'm ready to click all the likes and to laugh and to follow and all that, all that good stuff. I I just know, I think it's hilarious. And I think it's wonderful that I I just love where things are going. And I love um, the overall attitude of uh, the gay community of just like, you know what, like you could, yeah, you guys are like, you push back, we're gonna push back harder like you've, but that's how like so many things go how so many like movements go. It's like, you react strongly because things are happening so strongly and it's the people who are trying to stop things it's like i don't know we can go into it but (laughs) we won't um just like the the general psyche of uh today's generation versus like the people in power people in power are so out of touch and if they just focus on things that actually that people care about this this everything would be so much more productive and it's it's so simple it's just, i feel like it's just simple as that you know so edward cahill disorderly men that book is available now uh what where can we find you like where can we find you online and on social media um so i am at uh, edwardcahill.net and um i'm on uh, instagram and uh facebook and what used to be called twitter yeah, <laughs> I'll be at the uh, the the Tennessee Williams uh, Saints and Sinners Book Festival in New Orleans. Uh, if anybody feels like coming there for uh, a good time, lots of books, lots of interesting. Talks. I mean, New Orleans is like such a fun place, no matter what. When when is that happening? It's in March. March, perfect, perfect. Edward Cahill, thank you so much. Disorderly Men. Um, like I said, I think everybody should read this book. It was so powerful. It hit me in the feels. <laughs> and um, I encourage you to do whatever you want to do and feel free to come back because I would 
love to help you and talk to you about more of your work. Thanks, Megan. I appreciate it. And there you go. That was Edward Cahill talking about Disorderly Men. That book is available now. Please rate, review, subscribe. Check out the show notes for, to find links on where to follow him on social media and where to buy the book. Please follow Canteen Book Club on Goodreads, on Amazon, on social media. Book recommendations, please go ahead and check out CanteenBookClub.com. And if you like the authors, you like their work, go ahead and give them a review and a rating. It really does help them out. And as always, thank you guys so much for listening.